there's no better way to make yourself glucose intolerant than to not eat things that spike your blood sugar. And there's no better way to make yourself glucose tolerant than to eat things that spike your blood sugar. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer and high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, in this episode I'm chatting to Chris Masterjohn, whose work I've personally followed for some time. Chris is hugely knowledgeable in the area of nutrition, genetics and longevity. He has a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut, but after working in academia for many years, he left to pursue entrepreneurship and he's really passionate about translating and sharing complex science into practical principles that each of us can use to better support our health. And in this episode, we talk about a wide range of topics, including glucose tolerance and fasting, the effects of high intensity workouts, how to avoid nutritional insufficiencies, and also a phenomenon known as the peacock effect, where you are nutritionally replete and effectively can show off your genetic potential and health status. Great skin and hair would be an example of this, because while genes do play a part, obviously, in how our hair looks, um, hair is not a priority when micronutrient status is low. So glossy, shiny hair and glowing skin are often indicative of our health status. It's kind of like a sort of primal area around attraction and fertility. And we also touch on the reasons for graying hair, which in itself isn't straightforward. Chris has a wealth of knowledge and he shares much of this on his Substack. We will put a link in the show notes as to how you can connect with Chris and also his work. And the show notes to this episode are also on my website at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. So, Chris, firstly, a very warm welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this uh, this interview. I know we had to reschedule. I'm a big fan of your work So, um, from across the pond, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Um, let's kick off. We were talking about there because your content is very deep uh, and you're incredibly knowledgeable. Um, I think a good place to start is when we're thinking about nutrition. I know you talk about eating nose to tail uh, there isn't a kind of perfect diet, quote unquote, for every individual. And I think there's, um, I've heard you talk about limitations when people talk, think about things like genetics. But if we start with the premise of somebody who wants to live well and really increase their health span. So um, I think a lot of people are obsessed with longevity. I'm kind of more focused on how can we live really healthily and vibrantly? What would be the foundations that we need to be thinking about? I think the first rule would be that you want to try to get all the nutrients that you can from whole foods. And I mean, with respect to nutrition, right? So there's other pillars of a healthy life, like movement and sleep and all that. But if you're just thinking about nutrition, I think rule number one is how could you get all your vitamins and minerals and proteins, fats and carbohydrates and calories and everything that you need from whole foods. And an interesting point, I think, is that the public health authorities have basically made it so that we don't have to try to do that by taking the foods that people commonly eat and then fortifying them with what they think the population on average will be deficient in. And it's interesting if you look at history, how that generally only works for a period of time. So for example, um, they started iodizing salt when they saw that iodine was a major deficiency risk and they figured people eat a lot of salt. So we'll put iodine in the salt and the salt will be a vehicle to get iodine to the people to make sure that they don't have thyroid problems. But fast forward a few decades, and now they're telling people to restrict salt 
for their blood pressure and cardiovascular health. And so iodine deficiency is rising because of that. And there's other examples of that with white flour. White flour is, if you look, if you go buy white flour or you look at the ingredient list on something, you'll see enriched white flour. It's enriched not with the things that the whole wheat was rich in that have been removed. It's just randomly enriched with things that they think people will be deficient in. So they think, well, people could have iron deficiency. Anemia is a major problem. So we'll throw iron in there and so on. And because of that, it's kind of taken responsibility away from us to think about how to construct a good diet because we don't have to think about um, whether we're getting enough folate from liver, legumes, and leafy greens because there's folic acid in the white flour. So we can eat three sandwiches a day with six pieces of white bread. And on paper, it looks like we're getting all the folate we need. So when I say rule one is try to get all the vitamins and minerals from whole foods that you could get, I mean, exclude the stuff that's added. And if you actually had a little bit more responsibility to think about what you would construct as your own diet, and you learned a little bit enough about nutrition to think about what are the what kind of foods would I need to piece together in order to make sure I'm doing that, uh, then I think that pushes automatically pushes you into a much healthier diet because now all of a sudden you can't cheat with white bread. And that means that you have to eat more green vegetables. And now that also means that you have to not eat frozen vegetables because frozen vegetables lose their folate over time. So actually you could you could actually wind up with folate deficiency just from switching from white bread to frozen vegetables but that so that means you have to eat fresh vegetables and so as soon as you don't have these cheat codes that the public health authorities gave you and you have to think about like what is a what is a well-rounded enough diet for me to get my vitamins and minerals you're automatically pushed into much better food choices and then once you're there you need to think about what that means and i would say basic principles are you need a certain amount of protein, probably a third of your plate at every meal should be something very rich in protein. And really that means uh, meat, fish, dairy products, eggs. If you're a vegetarian, you could you could kind of put legumes in there, which are lentils, peas, and beans, but you're it's stretching it to call those rich in protein, but that's the best you can do on plant foods. Um and actually, you want to, if you're doing that, you want more than a third of your plate. You want like two thirds of your plate or three quarters of your plate if you're going to try to get protein from those foods. Um, and then diversify those proteins across the different types. So, and keeping in mind that every, if you don't talk, if you're allergic to eggs, I'm not saying you should eat eggs, um, but within what you tolerate, diversify that across meat, fish, dairy products, eggs, et cetera. And then, Within those animal products, try to di diversify across the animal, as you mentioned before, by nose to tail. And that's what our ancestors did by and large was eat the whole animal. It's a bit much for most modern people, but you could start on your journey to nose to tail by adding liver once a week and by consuming bone broth. That would be a, two ways that you could eat very important other parts of the animal. Um, and then I think carbohydrate fat balances is something that everyone needs to play around with on an individual level. But let's say there's a certain amount of carbohydrate in your plate, diversify that across not, you know, the default in the standard diet is refined grains, making those refined grains, whole grains that are properly prepared through souring, fermenting and other traditional means like that is a good choice. But you really want to diversify that to include starchy tubers and legumes 
and fruits and relatively higher calorie vegetables because the nutrient part of the reason for the diversification is that the new the vitamin and mineral content of all these things is very different so if you look at whole wheat uh whole wheat bread let's say whole wheat sourdough bread um you are getting important nutrients in there that you're and i'm not again not saying a celiac has to eat wheat but if you tolerate it you are getting important nutrients from whole wheat that you're not getting in a lot of these other foods especially on the choline and beet uh, betaine side of things um but you know you're really bad off if you're mostly eating whole grains you you will be much better off if you were only eating legumes or you were only eating starchy tubers but you're the best off if you're eating all of those because legumes are a great source of molybdenum which is a very important mineral and the others really aren't and fresh fruit and vegetables have vitamin c and legumes don't um and so on starchy tubers and legumes are very good sources of potassium grains aren't um so if you if you the more you diversify across these things the less you have to think about it whereas the more you say well i'm intolerant to 50 of the things that you mentioned you really want to start tracking your vitamin and mineral and taking it in an app and micromanaging it because the, the more you violate these rules it's not that you can't eat so like i could pick out five foods to eat for the rest of my life and have and be sufficient in all the nutrients but that's because i'm I'm, I have the expertise to have thought about it and picked out those five foods. If you are trying to eat a very restrictive diet, you really need to think a lot about this. But if you're diversifying, like I'm saying, you really don't. Um, I think if you, I think if we stop right there, I think those are like a very good first three steps for someone to think about how to put their, their meal plan together without having to micromanage anything. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's a couple of things I think drawing from that, that, I'd like to speak to you about. And I guess one is, um, why would we develop a sort of micronutrient or mineral insufficiencies in certain areas? So I've noticed if I use myself as an example, I seem to really struggle with enough potassium. That's just something. It's been right from the days when I was practicing as a lawyer. If I'm testing, it comes up as uh, potassium seems low. I seem to struggle a bit with magnesium. Um, I've tested with hair and I've tested with blood and it seems to correlate. Um, And it's just kind of curious. Yes, I don't really. And and this this would lead on to my second question, which we'll come on to. So I don't tend to eat. I know like bananas might be a good source, for example. I don't tend to eat them. They do spike my blood glucose. and, And I'd like to speak to you later around whole foods that are actually healthy, that spike, potentially spike blood glucose and what the implications of that are in people. But if you're eating a kind of broad diet and you're including a lot of different plant-based foods with some animal foods do you find that there's certain things in people's lifestyle um that are affecting it so for example are some people you know people who for example have a high energetic output maybe they are busy like i'm very busy with three kids a business i work out a lot maybe the the overall demands on someone's body are that much greater i'm just curious how you then go on to adapt it um, there seem to be so many different ways that we could look at, whether we look at genetics, whether we look at energetic output, all these different things. Um, but have you found that there are some people who just seem to be, uh, iron would be another one for me. And, and I know the reason for that, because that's been historical hormonal problems, actually, that have depleted iron. I'm just curious what you found there. Well, there's, um, I could speak to that generally or specifically. So generally speaking, there's a number of factors. One is just that 
different people's needs are are different for a lot. I mean, you could unpack many, many, many reasons for that. Um, as an example, the for with iron, the primary determinant of your of your iron requirement above the average for men is because the average woman has the, has almost the same average iron requirement as the average man. But if you look at the RDA, the, the RDA for women is way higher than men. Mm. And that's because the RDA is meant to cover 97.5% of people's needs. Notice by definition, two and a half percent of people are supposed to be deficient if everyone's eating the RDA. Mm -hmm. But but what so what they did is they they looked at the variation among women and it was the variation in their estimation was much greater because of the variation in menstrual blood loss. So the there's basically like a, a threefold variation in iron requirement that is solely driven by how much how heavy is your period. And so the heavier heavier your period, the more and blood is not menstrual fluid, it's not blood, but blood is a component of it. And most of your iron is in your blood. So if you blood loss is the major cause of iron leaving the body. Um, so if you have a heavier period, you will have a much higher iron requirement. And so the RDA is kind of it, it can be misleading if you don't read the report. So the like the average woman's iron requirement is a lot lower than the RDA because the average woman's period is much lighter than the 97.5th percentile of heaviness of period, which is what the RDA for women is based okay. on. Um, th and that's just one example. Um, but at the end of the day, there's there's just many thousands of reasons to make someone's needs different than others. And certainly lifestyle is part of that. You mentioned having higher demands in, on you. Um, you know, for potassium, sweat could be one. Different people first of all, lose different amounts of potassium in their sweat, but also different people sweat a lot in much different amounts, depending on what their lifestyle is and depending even on like where they live, right? Like if you, if you run for an hour outside at the equator versus in, you know, Maine, uh, in the United States, which is up in, you know, Canada, right? You're going to sweat a different amount. Um, and so th those are just two of many thousands of, of reasons for that. Um, then there, you know, others could just be like the metric that you're looking at might be reflecting your long-term status. Maybe you are doing things right now, but you had a, you were very depleted when you got to wherever you were in your journey that where you started doing things right. Um, malabsorption problems can make what gets into your body totally different from what you're putting in your mouth. Um, lots of reasons like that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I think a really common kind of I don't want to say it a trend, but I mean, I guess it is to a degree, is now for everyone to be taking minerals. Like um, there's some, I'm not going to mention brands, but this concept that I'm going to have a sodium, potassium, magnesium blend once or twice a day, right? Regardless of how much they're sweating, for example, it just seems across the board, quite a lot of people are then taking that. Um, and I just wanted to sort of better understand your views on that and where you come out in terms of does the average person need to be supplementing with a mineral-based drink um, or are they sufficient just to add a full mineral salt to their food and drink normal water? Um, you know, what about kind of like um, hydrating properly, even often like with a drip or something like that, you're going to have some sodium and then there's also a bit of glucose. What what are your thoughts around proper hydration? Um, my thoughts are everyone's overthinking it a bit because they all have a hypothalamus. So if you 
if you don't have, if you're not psychotic and you don't have a neurological disorder that's wrecking your hypothalamus, you should, you should only drink water when you're thirsty. Um, and a, a lot of people are told a bunch of BS about how your urine should be whatever color and you should drink eight glasses of water a day, which, you know, has no basis whatsoever is that, that even that number is based on the amount of water that would have to be total, including the water and food. And again, if you're making proper food choices, you're getting high water foods. Um, whole foods are very high in water compared to processed foods. So someone who's eating mostly processed foods is going to have to drink more water, but someone who's eating even, even meat. Uh, I mean, that's why when you cook meat, there's the juices come out in the pan because it's full of water. Mm. Right. So, um, and then of course, whether you consume those juices or not, like that's, that's water. Right. So if you're not sweating a lot and you're eating whole foods, you might not need to drink any water at all. Um, and the, what you do take in will be much more hydrating when you have things that water is attracted to along with it. Um, glucose, uh, I don't, I don't think is, is necessary, but it can certainly help. Um, and you, and you should cert. I mean, certainly if you are, um, the thing, the thing is, uh, like if you have diarrhea, you, you should probably be on, on something like salted white rice because the salt and the glucose from the rice will draw the water into the, uh, intestinal cells when it is, um, when, when it's being absorbed. But if, if you don't have a problem, you probably don't need glucose necessarily, but you, you definitely do want, um, probably something on the order of like a 16th of a teaspoon of salt and a slice of lemon fully squeezed out per glass of water, just for the sake of having things that are attracted to the water to bring it in. And then when it's in to bring it into your cells. Um, but I mean, obviously you're absorbing the water if you're not having loose stools, uh, and, and in fact, that's a perfect, uh, perfect metric of how much water you're absorbing from your intestines. If your intestine, if your stool is too hard, it's lower in water. And if it's too soft, it's higher in water. Um, providing the softness isn't uh, sort of like making it very light and float and have it look soapy, in which case that's fat. But um, but then once the water's in your body, you know, how much do you pee out versus how much do you retain in your cells? And that's going to be driven very much by the salt and potassium that is associated with it. And it's it's not a hard and fast rule. Like you need to have the ratio in the water because you already have salt and potassium in your body. Um, and so that's why it really comes back down to your, your thirst and your drive for salt. Um, now, because people overthink it, most people have wrecked their own drive for thirst and salt with their overthinking. Um, and I, I'm not sure how to purge the overthinking, but my suggestion would be like, um, do the, maybe try to do like a salt reset. Like if, if you usually regulate your water intake, according to a certain number, maybe you should just like not drink any water for a week, um, you know, but get, but like stay hydrated through food. Um, and then like, if you normally restrict your salt, maybe just like pound your, 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 just put dump your salt all over your food for a week or something like that, just to like jolt you out of your usual pattern. Um, I mean, granted, like if you, if you, if your salt sensor hyper salt, if you have salt sensitive hypertension, don't do that. Um, but you really shouldn't be thinking about it. You should drink water when you're thirsty and you should 
eat salt when you when you crave salt and and if if you put salt on your food and it doesn't taste salt do you you should eat more salt um and you should put them together when you crave salt and water right so if i go for a morning one hour run in the summer i get back and i am craving water and salt and so i have a like i use element which is very high salt electric um electrolyte mix and um and i'm also very much craving cold so i mix it in water i put some bunch of ice cubes in it i go take a shower and i come back and that's what i drink for the next 20 minutes um but that's that's because i've lost so much water and salt that now i'm craving water and salt uh you you should not need to think about it at all your hypothalamus does that unless it's damaged If you listen to this podcast, you're probably like me. You want to have high energy every day to achieve everything you want to, while also protecting your health span and longevity. And for the last six months, I've been taking a supplement called NAD Regen by Biostat Labs. Not only does it contain a powerful combination of niacinamide, NAD3 and resveratrol, which support NAD, also known as the molecule of youth, it has spermidine in it. And spermidine helps inhibit many of the hallmarks of aging. It also supports better cognition, improved memory, heart health and circadian rhythm. And I'll tell you what I've noticed since taking NAD Regen is consistently high energy, which is a huge bonus given that I'm always juggling the demands of running both my businesses alongside my kids and all of their activities and my daily workouts. And I've also noticed a lot of new hair growth, which is common with spermidine. The beauty benefits are, of course, always welcome. So after experiencing all these benefits, I wanted you to experience similar ones. And so I've arranged a very special offer with our sponsors, Biostat Labs. When you buy two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs are giving listeners of this show a free bottle of GD-Aid, their glucose supplement that contains the very best ingredients for all-round metabolic health. I take NAD Regen in the morning in a fasted state before my workout to amplify the autophagy boosting effects and then GDA just before my most carb heavy meal of the day to blunt the glucose spike. To get your free bottle of GDAid and all the energy and health promoting benefits of NAD Regen, head over to biostacklabs.com forward slash Angela. And when you purchase two bottles of NAD Regen, Biostat Labs will send you a free bottle of GDAid. That's biostatlabs.com forward slash Angela to get your exclusive offer. I'm inviting you to join our newly opened High Performance Health Facebook group where we're all about unlocking our utmost potential. If you are a fellow biohacker, a coach or a woman with an entrepreneurial spirit looking for peak performance, then our community of ambitious women is just for you. But it's not just about connecting with like-minded women. It's about empowering each other. We have weekly live training, Q&As, and a bunch of other exclusive content that I don't get the chance to share anywhere else. New biohacks I'm exploring, plus extra nuggets of wisdom from my podcast guests and so much more. It's free to join. Simply click the top link in the show notes or go to angelafoster.me forward slash HP. That's angelafoster.me forward slash HPH or click the top link in the show notes. And once inside, send me a message so we can connect personally. I can't wait to see you there. 
Thank you for clearing that up. I also use uh, Element when I'm taking, like if I'm going in the sauna or something like that, for example. Right. Um, but what's interesting there is you want to unpack a few things because I think it's valuable for people. So actually you were looking at hydration status through the metric of looking at bowel movements, which I think is interesting for people. So just so I can make sure we're clear so people understand it. If your stool, setting aside the floaty kind of fluffy pale color that you've associated with fat, if someone has a loose stool, that would indicate or versus a more constipated stool, what should they be taking from that in relation to hydration status? Um, really not anything more than the fact of what it means for water absorption. So it, the problem is it doesn't really give you much insight into causation, right? So you can have diarrhea because you had an infection and mm. the infection is making toxins that are drawing water into your intestines. Um, but that hasn't, but that's still, you should still be on salted white rice. Um, I mean, the salted white rice is, is a cure for diarrhea that's used all over the world because, it's dirt cheap and it provides glucose and salt, which will draw water back in regardless of whether there's some infection causing the toxin there. Um, so, but, you know, but, but looking at the stool quality really doesn't like, it doesn't really tell you about the quality of your water habits that much. It just tells you about the fact of whether the water's le being left behind or being absorbed. So it's like, if you're constipated, like the lesson is not Oh, I'm doing really great with my hydration because all the water is coming inside <laughs> me. Um, you, you still have a you still have a problem, Probably, uh, yeah. but uh, but I'm but I'm just saying like I guess I, I'm using it more as I think it's more as like a negative check than a positive insight. It's like you know that you don't have to worry about whether you're absorbing your water if you don't have diarrhea. I guess is what I'm saying, right? Like mm -hmm. if if you if you if you're if you have, um, if you do not have loose stools, you do not have water left in your intestines. Now, it doesn't mean that you that you retained it. You might have peed it all out, <laughs> but you know that. It, but again, like if you have symptoms of dehydration or something like that, which which really primarily putting aside all the your body's many cries for water stuff really is thirst. Um, so if you're thirsty and you're drinking a lot and you're peeing a lot, like put two and to get two and two together. Like the problem is you're peeing too much, and it's not. And you might be peeing too much because you don't have enough salt. Hmm. Uh, and you might not, you, if you if you don't have enough salt, it's probably because it's probably your fault. Because you it's haven't been you're, a, It's probably because you're trying to be know. healthy and not eating salt or something. Yeah. Like that. Although this is another problem with processed foods. Most salt on the average diet comes from processed foods and only 6% of the average person's salt comes from salt in their food. So I think a lot of people who ditch processed foods and eat whole foods have no clue how much salt they should be adding to their food and how easy it is to become deficient in sodium as a result of that. And that's also part of the taste problem because a lot of processed foods have the salt uh, pack. It's like some of them, like a potato chip, the salt is on the surface because they want it to taste salty, but other types of products like sausages or things that are gelled and things like that, the salt uh, it's there to hold or deli meats are a great example. Like you wonder, like, how did they grind this thing up and make it take that shape? And it's because they added all kinds of stuff to it to make a like congealing thing that like kept it as a slice. Um, like it's obviously like a, like you can, like you'd never cut open a turkey and be able to take like sliced turkey out of it. it it's totally different. Right. And so the, the, the salt in there is part of the congealing process that makes it stick together and it's not hitting your taste buds. So if you have been a on a high processed food diet um, 
I mean, and so like technically speaking, bread and cheese is processed and the stuff that we think of processed is ultra processed. But if you're, even if you're on like an 80% homemade, actually store-bought bread and cheese is ultra processed and the stuff you make at home is just processed. But even if you, even if you mostly eat bread and cheese that you made yourself, a lot of that salt is hidden from your taste buds. So if you switch to, to a completely unprocessed diet, like fresh meat and vegetables, you your t- your sense of t- taste for salt will be totally distorted by having had so much salt come in that you couldn't taste right because that's your your hypothalamus is going to calibrate to that and it's mm. it's going to adjust your taste of salt for what it thinks it means is getting enough salt so if you suddenly change that ratio to a whole foods diet where it tastes as salty but there's 20% as much salt in it your that's a case where your taste might be very distorted and it could take you a long time to calibrate to that. So you really want to be liberal with salting your food if you're on a whole foods, like an authentically whole foods diet. And by liberal, how much do you mean? Because I'm pretty much eat whole foods. I think a lot of the listeners do. Like, And I notice what you're saying. And I think that salt sensor is quite interesting, quite effective from my understanding of the, of the reading on, on this is you know, actually you'll be driven as you did, like you, when you were talking about coming back from your run, you're driven towards salt when you need it. And I've noticed that sometimes it's like, oh, I just need more salt. I need to add it to my food um, a bit more. It's difficult, isn't it, to judge how much you're having, particularly like if I'm cooking for a family, like how do I know? I, I don't I have no idea how much salt I'm actually adding. It just, the Redmond Reel just kind of gets added in. Do you know what I mean? And then I see, yeah, do I feel that like anymore or not? Right. If you're cooking for other people, it, it gets a little bit hard. And I, I don't know a solution to that. But um, but you should, like I was saying before, you shouldn't need to think about it. So if all the evidence points towards your sense of sal- saltiness is well calibrated, then you should just stop thinking about it. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is if, um, you know, if you switch to a whole foods diet and you have symptoms of, not getting enough salt, like especially fatigue, poor nutrient absorption, and cognitive decline, then you you should think about the possibility that you you just cut your salt intake in a fifth, and you need more salt on your food, and you you need to recalibrate your taste buds. As the, I I think leaving salt on the table is a pretty good solution to I'm um, cooking for five people, and how do I make sure they all <laughs> get it right? Because yeah, it so, is. So the, I think the solution is don't put so much salt in the food that you're over overriding the the sort of like minimum the uh the lowest ranked need for salt at the table um you know right so like the amount of salt that you put in there shouldn't be anyone who's complaining that it's too salty Mm. right if there's one person complaining that it's too salty you put less salt in it and then the and then the people who don't think it's salty enough but they just add salt to it yeah that's pretty much what we do and it's interesting because it does vary between individuals um Thank you for that, because I think that clears up a lot, because I think people are possibly over-supplementing with different uh, additions and things um, when it's just easy to add it to food. Um, we also were looking there at the hydration, right, the, the hydration content of whole foods. Um, vegetable juices are also hydrating. And this is uh, an area where um, I'm curious as to to, to what, your, what your opinion of it is. So if, for example... We wouldn't have known ancestrally. We didn't like or creek and we'll put a CGM and see what's going on. But we just didn't know, right? We weren't tracking our blood glucose. Yes, we were moving around a lot and doing all of the, the good things. But what I've observed is some 
particular vegetables will spike blood sugar in certain individuals and then in others they don't right so if one individual has an apple they might see a spike another person doesn't um if i have something like carrot juice for example i'll see it really kind of shoot up what are your thoughts around what's your, what's your definition mm? of shooting up so i um I can only talk about it in the UK index, which is slightly different. So if it was kind of knocking in and around at, say, five, and I had a large glass of carrot juice, it could jump to 12, 13, which would be a big kind of quite a big spike. Yeah. Let me. Okay. So five, So I don't know what that converts yeah, I'm gonna, to. I'm going I'm to put it in a calculator. So five millimoles per liter is, um. oh, man, where did it go? One second is uh, ninety, and then twelve is. Okay, I mean, you might even go higher at fourteen. Yeah, that's really yeah. high. That's a big um, spike, right? From from yeah. what is, and I, I realize so it's a juice. My but... question would be, how often how often do you uh, drink the carrot juice? Well, because of that, I don't. Yeah, however, it is something. Well, that how I often love. had you been doing it before you noticed it spiked your glucose that high? It wasn't actually, it was when I started to juice and I, um, we got a juicer and I was experimenting and I realized that a large glass of carrot juice would spike it. Um, so you hadn't so, been, you hadn't been drinking carrot juice. Yeah. So my guess is if you drank the carrot juice each day for five days, that wouldn't happen. Interesting. But okay. it, it, it depends, right? So like you're, and this is a huge problem with CGMs is mm. exactly what you just said, which is. People think that the glycemic response is an intrinsic part of the food. And so they run away from things that have high glycemic responses, which I think is, um, I, I think that's a terrible way to use them because um, you're, if you're healthy and there's nothing wrong with your ability to tolerate glucose, that doesn't mean that you'll never have a blood sugar spike. It means that you won't have that kind of blood sugar spike to whatever you do regularly. There's no better way to make yourself glucose intolerant than to not eat things that spike your blood sugar. And there's no better way to make yourself glucose tolerant than to eat things that spike your blood sugar. And there's like the, for the, when they test for diabetes, you're supposed to be on a two, at least 200 grams of carbs a day for, every day for at least two weeks before you take a glucose tolerance test. Because if you're lower than that, you're going to fail it. And you're not going to fail it because there's anything wrong with you. You're going to fail it because your body had no reason to tolerate 75 grams of glucose coming in at once. I'm um, so glad you've cleared this up because this this has been my concern with glucose monitors and everything that we're seeing is that people then immediately start moving away from whole food sources of vegetables and things. And, yeah, uh, and you're giving yourself hy hyperglycemophobia. Yeah, yeah. 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 Because they're what they become is is you can become fixated on how do I keep within this narrow window? And what's interesting is there's things that you can do there that I think disrupt things like the Randall cycle and you can introduce fats and things. And then actually people see weight gain, right? And it might be like, oh, great, I'm keeping it within this really narrow index. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're super healthy. And as you've said there, you're also you're less able now, right, to tolerate um to tolerate carbohydrates. And so people, the, the, the amount of carbs they're eating, because for someone who is, for example, like quite active, they should easily tolerate 100 to 200 grams of carbohydrates from whole food sources a day, right? Whereas the more you restrict that, the, the more sensitive you become. Yeah. Um, I, I would not make any conclusions about anything impacting your blood sugar unless you do it every day for at least five days. 
I have a carrot juice experiment coming up because I did it actually. I was out in Dubai and it was really, really hot and I had real swings in uh, blood pressure regulation. So I was getting really low blood pressure and they were like, have the juices, have the vegetable juices. I didn't have a CGM on me, so I didn't have the chance to track. So this is why it's kind of fresh in my mind and I loved it and love water and things like that. And now I'm curious to see if I regularly do that, what happens? Yeah. I'd also, do you look at it while it's happening or do you look at it like the next day? Uh, both. I mean, it, it, on something like that, it will come down actually extremely quickly. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm just wondering, the reason I ask is because I think if, I think wondering about it or seeing the numbers could cause anxiety. Um, but if it's well, if it's well, um, blinded, uh, or, and you're very distracted. So I like, I guess it depends if you're an anxious person or not. Um, but I think a blood, a temporary blood sugar spike that high is, is probably not doing anything of that, anything much of significance, unless you get like a extreme sensory hypersensitivity. So your glucose is your blood glucose is the main determinant of your brain glucose, which is the main determinant of how much glutamate there is in your brain. And in principle, in principle, your blood sugar should be able to do anything. Your brain just soaks it up, makes glutamate, stores it, and uses it when needed. And so there's no symptomatic response. Um, but but sometimes I'll get severe hypersensitivity if my blood sugar goes way above 200. And I think that's that's probably doing some neurological damage. But other than that, I I like it's if it goes up and comes down, it's like nothing real bad happened. Um, and so it's not it's not it's not something that you should be afraid of playing around with like if you're not getting a negative symptomatic response to it um you don't want to regularly spike your blood sugar to 200 but like you can afford to do it again and see what the trend is so that you also need to take into account you had mentioned activity you need to take into account how much glycogen you've depleted so your liver primarily depletes glycogen through fasting and your muscles primarily deplete glycogen through exercising but you have to get over a certain intensity threshold to use a lot of glucose. Um, so generally speaking, if you're, if your breathing is elevated, like noticeably elevated, you're probably burning some glucose. Um, and if you're huffing and puffing after you stop exercising for a couple of minutes, you probably burned a lot of glucose. Um, you will probably see that your glucose tolerance is way better when you're glycogen depleted because that glucose has a place to go very quickly if it goes through your liver first, your pancreas doesn't even see glucose until after your liver takes what it needs for glycogen. So your the way your blood is wired is that it goes from the intestines to the liver first. The liver tops off all its glycogen. Then what's left from that goes to the pancreas. And the pancreas then makes insulin. And if the insulin is proportionate to the glucose and there's enough room in the muscles to take up as glycogen, the insulin just pushes it into the muscles and you never see the spike in you your see. blood. So you might, so what I find, for example, is when I do a one hour zone two run outside, that's the most glycogen depleting work workout that I do. Um, because even though the rate of burning glucose at, so zone two is basically, um, if you, for a lot of people, it would be like a medium jog. Um, it's basically the point at which you would find it, you would be able to carry out a conversation, but it'd be difficult and the person talking to you would be able to like note, like if you were talking on the phone, to be able to notice that you're breathing different. I don't do that. What I do is I, um, my rule is I'm in zone two. My personal rule is I'm in zone two. If a, if I 
if I feel the need to slow down at any point, like I can't keep up the pace, I'm going too fast. And if I can't hear myself breathing and it doesn't take a lot of mental effort to keep my mouth closed to breathe, um, that's where I want to be for, for an hour. So my glucose tolerance will get profoundly better for days after that. And each day, my glucose tolerance will just then get worse and worse until it goes back to wh where it normally be after a couple of rest days. Um, Interesting. You know, so, so if you did, if you did like you, if you're not burning any muscular glycogen, you're not going to notice that. But if you cyclically through the week have a high glycogen burning workout and other workouts that don't burn glycogen and you have rest days, absolutely. That's going to be a determinant in your, your, in your uh, glucose tolerance. So that's, that's one reason that you can't take one Mm. trial with carrot juice seriously if you didn't try it in those different contexts um but then you know accounting for that really the big thing is when you repeat it is is your glucose toler tolerance deteriorating or is it or is it getting better every day um now it could be deteriorating because the first test was done right after you did a glycogen burning workout and so of course it's going to be worse the second time than the first time because the first time you topped off your glycogen now you don't need to anymore so you're going to get so you have to take that into account but if you control for that then you should see every single time your glucose tolerance gets better to repeating that um and if it doesn't that's your clue like if it does the opposite then you then you might have a then you might have genuine glucose intolerance that's developing not because mm. you did that experiment but because of things mm. going on in the background yeah i've done it a few times but not in the way you've described now what's really interesting about what you're saying there is i do notice a difference let's say for example i have something like sourdough right post-workout uh i won't see any uh spike and particularly like if i'm having it with protein and things like that alongside post-workout so i generally work out faster in the morning however glucose tolerance in me i would say and I don't know what the listeners are finding, but um, by lunchtime, if I was to replicate that meal and it's that much further away from the workout, then I would see a greater spike. So I observed that I Is tolerate- Is that true even if you didn't eat anything in that window? If I had fasted all morning, no, then, uh, no, then after it would the be- After the workout, are you, are you saying yeah. that, you, that you, you, you consume that after eating other things? Or are you saying that you fast after the workout and if you fast long enough, then you'll become glucose intolerant? No, what I was saying is, let's say, for example, I've done a fasted workout early in the morning, yeah. then I have some breakfast, yeah. I, I won't I won't see a spike, right, if it's got carbohydrates in it. Yeah. So I've had that breakfast with carbohydrates. Let's say yeah. I then decide to have some carbohydrates at lunchtime, I will see but, more but are of you a eating spike. Breakfast? Are you I've eating had breakfast? breakfast, yeah, I've had oh, breakfast. Oh, yeah, well, that's why. Yeah, exactly. That's probably why. Because I've repleted that glycogen, right? right. Um. So I have noticed yeah, that exactly you're what you're eating, saying. If you even if you're not eating carbohydrates, you're going to replete the glycogen with gluconeogenesis. Mm, yeah. So if you had, if you ate protein, you, you're not going to get the same rapidity of repleting the glycogen, but you're going to be repleting it. Yes. Yeah. And, and potentially like if you're not refueling with carbs, putting a bit of stress on the body. Um, what's interesting to me is what you were saying let me, there. Let me make one last statement about yeah, that. Go for so it. you're not measuring your lactate. And I, I honestly think that True. glucose glucose measurements are are just totally taken out of context if you're not measuring ketones and lactate so i think that everyone would be better off measuring all three but but because of that the lactate that you make during exercise is going to replete your glycogen as well so if you're mm. you it's very possible that you're la that you're suppressing the lactate oxidation by eating the carbs and you're not seeing glucose spike but your lactate's staying elevated longer and i'm not saying this is a terrible thing but i'm just saying like um even if you didn't eat breakfast, 
and you generated a lot of lactate, that lactate would be oxidized and re turned back into glucose to restore the, the muscle glycogen during that time frame. And so not measuring lactate is, I think is, can create some misleading effects because your your like your total if you took like the sum of glucose plus lactate it, you might it might not make any difference whatsoever whether you're eating it at lunch versus breakfast um and it it might just be the choice of are you repleting the glycogen with the carbs you ate or are you repleting it with the lactate that's in your body already that you made during the workout and mm. it's just which one's going to be left in the blood interesting it's a fair point yeah interesting and 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 I wanted to pick up on something you were saying there so you were saying your most glycogen depleting workout that you do is a zone two run. Yeah. And what you were describing there, uh, just to clarify for listeners, is the upper end of zone two, right? Just be you're you're sort of getting to that threshold just before you go in zone three. So it's like the the limit no, of where I, you're comfortably no, nasal I, I, well, breathing. I, I have no no basis to be that precise. Oh, okay. It. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm just considering myself to be in zone two. Okay. Yeah. But it's an easy nasal breathing run. I wouldn't call it easy i mean basically like i i if i can hear myself breathing through my nose like it's one of the predominant sounds that i hear um but i got to be able to do it for it's at the upper edge of what i would be able to sustain for an hour okay like i would i would not be able to go much faster and and not and be able to go an hour without reducing my pace like i'm at that edge okay and what about when you do things like for example uh, you do a weightlifting uh, workout. What have you found there in terms of glucose tolerance? Uh, I think it's way less of an effect, and it's because of the, it's because of the duration, right? So you're you're burning more glucose. Well, it, if you're in like a ten to fifteen rep range, you're and to be clear, like the assumption is that you're within one or two reps of failure when you're doing any resistance. Like if you're if you're doing ten or fifteen reps of something you could have done twenty, you're not even exercising. You're warming up. <laughs> period. End of story. That's um, true. So if you're, but if you're in like a ten to, and this is going to be different for different people, but on average, ten to fifteen reps, you're burning a lot of glucose. It's just you're only doing it for thirty seconds or a minute, mm. right? And so the the fact that your your workout when you lift weights is mostly rest is, you know, if you think about it, if you're doing like if you stretch out like a fifteen, maybe fifteen reps takes you a minute or a minute ten seconds or something like that. Um, but you're probably resting for at least that in between. And if you're trying to get strong, you should be resting a lot more than that. Um, so for strength and probably for muscle mass, you probably want to be resting three, four, five minutes. Um, and so in a, in a workout like that, it's the, yeah, you're, it's a higher rate of glucose burning, but the, but you're mostly resting, right? So the, the thing with the zone two is that zone two is bringing you the real definition of zone two is that your fast twitch muscle fibers are generating lactate at just beyond the threshold that your slow twitch muscle fibers are able to consume it at. So if you're in zone one, you don't see your lactate rise in your blood because all the lactate made by your fast twitch muscle fibers is consumed by your slow twitch muscle fibers. But when you start going above that threshold, this, the lactate will reach the blood and your lactate starts going up. So that's the real defin that's like the biochemical definition of being in zone two. Um, so you're clearly burning carbs if you're generating lactate. That's, I mean, you were, you were burning carbs before in zone one, because you're making lactate that's being consumed by the slow twitch fibers. 
Um, so you're clearly burning, even though, even though if you measured all the fuel utilization, it would probably be more fatty acids than glucose. It's still glucose and it's being kept at that constant level for an hour. And so it's that duration that makes the total glycogen burned greater. Right. And when you look at, um, from a longevity perspective, um, what, how do you apportion your workouts across a week? What are you looking at in terms of zone two lifting? Do you do any high intensity work? Yeah. Um, my workouts are basically three resistance exercise workouts and one zone two jog. My resistance workouts are basically one lower body, one upper body focused on horizontal and vertical movements and one upper body focused on transverse plane rotational exercises. And, um, in the lower body workout, I have a set of right now I'm doing high intensity intervals with five pound ankle weights on each ankle doing 180 degree turning squat jumps. And this is, I'm mainly picked it because I'm hoping that next, this coming winter, it'll help me master the skill of doing 180s off jumps. Um, but in the meantime, it provides some, it's like, it's sufficiently fatiguing in a squat with no weight because I'm jumping. So I think it's sufficiently fatiguing in the right amount of time that it's got a hypertrophy stimulus and it's also high intensity interval. And I, I'm, I'm going to measure, start measuring my heart rate. Cause I think the one thing that I'm missing from my workout is, is reaching maximum heart rate once a week. But I, I think maybe I do do that in this high intensity workout. So I'm going to be measuring my heart rate because if, if I can, so um, I know I listened to an, interview between Andy Galpin uh, and uh, and Huberman. And Galpin was saying that he would recommend each person reach maximum heart rate once a week. And that if you're, if you're doing like an all out sprint for duration, uh, you could probably do it if it's like a three minute sprint. But if you broke it up into sets, you would probably have to do five or six minutes of work per week to get there. And mm. it would have to be like all out sprint, 20 seconds, 20 seconds off, and then like do it keep doing that until you hit your maximum heart rate. So I think I might hit that during that, that workout. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not really like planning out longevity. I'm, I'm more sort of like trying to hit all my particular goals. Um, you know, but from a longevity perspective, one thing that I think would be valuable would be, so I, I was talking to, um, I was talking to a client who was asking me questions about this and he, he, he said he hates working out, but he's very focused on his deadlift PR and I was talking about some neck exercises that I do that are like more like physical therapy. And he's like, well, yeah, like I, like what I'm, what I've been noticing now is that like, I, if I want to look to the right, I have to like turn my torso to do it. And I think that's pretty common. Like I would think from a longevity health span perspective, you would want to be able to look both ways without, without having to use your chest. Yeah. It's interesting um, observation I, in older people that I've noticed actually is that they go like, <laughs> As opposed to like this, right? It's it's interesting how that, well, that must get quite one, quickly. That's but only yeah. one. That's only mm. one example. I mean, like how many old people do you mm. know that are getting like steroid injections for their back or whatever, which is which yeah. is one hundred percent exclusively because of their decades of poor movement patterns. Mm, it's true. I want to pick up on something you said there. On, yeah. Um, 
sorry, on the zone, on the hitting the maximum intensity, that is something I interviewed Andy Galpin actually, and it's something that I've played with. And you're right, you you to actually get to maximum heart rate, it is difficult to do without repeated sets. It sounds like what you're doing is so hard that you would be, but I found that unless you do that kind of one-to-one ratio of work to rest recovery, it's very, very difficult. If you're doing like a 20-second sprint and then you do say 40 seconds of recovery, for example, and you go again, I'll find that I'll fatigue overall on the workout on say the 10 sets of sprints or whatever, but I can't reach maximum heart rate. You have to really condense that recovery time in order to get there. Yeah. Well, I just started measuring my heart rate during it uh, yesterday and I haven't looked at the data yet. So I'll probably try to modify the protocol to to try to make it hit maximum heart rate because I'd rather not add another thing if I can make that thing achieve that one exercise achieve three goals <laughs> so and and you're doing the jumps for what was it skiing or snowboarding or so, um yeah so well i mean i I, th- I don't think it's only beneficial in this context but but i it was designed with the goal in mind of being able to snowboard uh off jumps in a terrain park and do 180s off them yeah. which is which is which involves a lot of skills because you you also have to land and switch, which is like the opposite footing of where mm. you usually are and things like that. But have you read Nar Country by Stephen Cutler? No. Really definitely worth a read on that. What is it? Because what is it called? Nar Country. Nar Country? Nar Country, G N A R. And he he was specifically oh. part of that was um like aging and the brain and things, but the things that he learned to do in terms of those jumps and like three hundred sixty degree jumps. Um, actually at a later stage um, in in his 50s is phenomenal during COVID and what he showed and about flow states and how he's done it. I think that book would really interest you if you're if you're playing with that. Yeah, it's really good. Cool. Um, okay, out. so um, going back to nutrition then, um, the other thing I want to talk to you about was omega-3-6 status. Um, it's something you talk about. What are your thoughts around how how can we optimize for this? Because I think it's, is quite a difficult thing in particularly in a modern modern day diet. I think eating one or two pieces of fatty fish a week would probably be the simplest thing. And that's it. No omega three supplements. No, um, I mean largely no. Uh, but if you don't eat fish, uh, I mean you you got to look at the needs of the whole diet, right? So if one thing you want to think about is fat soluble vitamins. For example, cod liver oil has omega three fatty acids. Got vitamins A and a and D. Um, and so you need to think about like, do I need vitamins A and D? And um, and so on, because you're not really going to get much vitamin A and D from from fish. You'll get fatty fish has a little bit of vitamin D, but not not really any vitamin A. Um, and so you got to think about like, well, usually v- vitamin D would be the major the major source would be the sun, and vitamin A, the major source would be liver, and Omega three fatty acids, a major source would be fish. You know, so if you're missing all three things, then maybe you want to take cod liver oil. Um, and then high dose fish oil, it has some pharmacological benefits, but I don't think that has anything at all to do with nutrition. It just happens to be a nutrient. But um, you know, for you can lower triglycerides with like five six grams EPA, but that's getting EPA at a way higher level than would be traditional for most people. Um, it, with the exception of the seacoast dwelling Arctic peoples, but they have totally different genetics uh, than everyone else in the world. So um, then, then also like there's 
there's evidence for um, treating psychiatric problems with high dose CPA as well. But I think that's, I would also regard that as a pharmaceutical venture. So I, I think that from a nutritional standpoint, basic needs are two or 300 milligrams of EPA and DHA with a bias towards DHA. And you're going to get that if you eat like two pieces of salmon a week. You could take cod liver oil. That'd be an alternative way of getting it. Um, I think for breastfeeding, you might want to go a little higher. So there is, there's the problem is there's not that much research about it, but the DHA content of the, of breast milk is very dependent on the maternal DHA intake. And there is evidence uh, that if you get 1.2 grams of EPA and DHA combined from cod liver oil, which depends on the which cod liver oil you're looking at, but that, that would often be like a teaspoon, um, then you increase the IQ of the child by the age of four, although it fades away by the age of seven. And I think that's, but there's probably, I mean, my view is there's probably something that's very positively hardwired in the brain. If you've increased the IQ by age four, I think the the reason the effect fades away when it's followed up to seven years is because there's so many uh, cultural and other like learning effects on IQ that they start to overshadow the basic biological effect before the child went to school. Um, my suspicion is that there's something very good in the brain when you were able to see like that. There's something very good that's permanent in the brain when you're able to see the IQ effect at four. Like it might not be IQ that you see the effect at seven, but there might but there might be measurable benefits at the age of sixty five for the person whose brain was adequately loaded with DHA during development. Mm, interesting. I, I remember her name now. She wrote Nutritious Minds and had done some research on this. And it was interesting how look, she was looking at the processing speed of children in the classroom. And if they were replete in omega-3, uh, the difference in um, a child's ability to listen to the question, understand it, and formulate a response was I think like three times faster or something than a child who was not replete in omega-3, who would still be kind of listening and trying to figure out what was going on. But in her research, she found that the complementary cofactors of eating oily fish was superior to taking anything in supplement form, which is kind of in line with what you're saying as well, right? When we look at something like cod liver oil. Yeah, I haven't read that book, but that sounds like it's based on observational correlations, in which case I would say that it that also might have be have confounders related to the um, choices of the parents other other than the food choices. Mm. I need to like, dig I, out I, what I, she I did. Be, I might be wrong, in but in terms I'm pretty, of her study, I, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the only like large scale human intervention trial is the cod liver oil one with the. Although maybe she was talking about the same study that I am. Maybe. Maybe she was looking at more but, um, of actual eating fish and how that was superior. Right. So I don't, I um, might be, or um, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to read the book. Um, I mean, to, from what, from my memory of what I've seen in the literature, um, like I think that the only randomized controlled trial of omega threes on kids IQ is the, is the cod liver oil during, during um, breastfeeding study, I think. Um, and so that's, that's why I'm just, I'm just guessing and I might be wrong, but I'm just guessing that that mm. sounds like it's like, who is eating more fish and what, how was there, you know, do you, do you yeah. remember, do you remember? I don't remember. It was a while back actually yeah. that I interviewed her. I could dig it out. I'll find it. 
and have a look at well, it. Well, I mean, I would just emphasize that with what I said before, where the diet of the children is going to be another thing that is going to potentially overshadow what the mother was doing when she was breastfeeding. That would be another mm. another reason that you might that the breastfeeding effect might subside by the time that the child's been in school a couple of years. Mm. And they've been eating a different diet. Um, right. The other thing I want to talk to you about um, before you go was methylation um, and supporting adequate methylation in the body. Um, I think you have actually a very good handout on MTHFR optimization. Um, can you share a little bit about that um, and how people can support it? Yeah. Uh, methylation is a process in your body that is needed for many hundreds of things, but some of the highlights are it's needed to make creatine, which makes you strong. And is ever, a lot of people know that, but a lot of people don't know that creatine is also important for your digestion and your eyesight and your reproductive um, fertility and all kinds of things like that. It makes phosphatidylcholine, which is important for your liver health and your gallbladder health, as well as many other things. Um, the choline synthesis can also increase acetylcholine, which is good for your memory and attention and is good for your muscular power, as well as having a calming effect in the parasympathetic nervous system. It's important for clearing away histamine, uh, which is important for reducing anxiety, as well as stomach acid problems and allergy type symptoms. Uh, it's important for metabolizing dopamine in a way that makes you more mentally flexible and therefore less ruminating and less stuck on things and is probably helpful in OCD and is probably helpful in certain subtypes of anxiety and depression. And um, and then it's just doing you know many, many hundreds of things. And so methylation requires a lot of nutrients. Some of the key star players are folate, B12, and choline, but really it's dependent on the rest of the B vitamins, a bunch of minerals, and your energy metabolism. And you have a good, um, I think, download, don't you, on Substack um, yep. if people want to find out more. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, the easiest way to get it, I mean, it's, I got to, if you just search start here for MTHFR and methylation, that's probably the best way to do it. So if I go to, let's see, I go to chrismasterjohnphd.com, chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com. If I just type in MTHFR, it pops up. Start here for MTHFR and methylation. That's a free PDF. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes. Yep. Um, anything else that people should be thinking about? Um, I think you have recently talked about reversing graying hair, um, which... Yeah, well, I mean, I think the gist of what I put out is that the research basis is is pretty horrible um and that's and i think that's because your hair and your and you know to to a large extent your skin as well but especially your hair is um functionally useless peacocking and so you're putting out your hair to advertise the resources that you can waste on looking good and as a result of that it's a general reflection of the state of your energy metabolism. If you're in a state of energetic abundance, you're going to have great hair. Um, and, uh, and I think that, that the reason that the kind of alternative treatments for reversing hair graying research is so horrible is because everyone's different and probably has their own 
limiting factors to their energy metabolism. And you, you can take something that's common, like hypothyroidism or obesity, uh, but even then, and I, this is a much broader topic, I guess if there's one thing that I wanted to add, uh, and this is, I'm very immersed in unraveling this right now. So every person on average has one, two, maybe three rare genes that are genes for genetic diseases that are too rare to be accurately tested by things like 23andMe and Ancestry and can only be looked at with whole genome sequencing. And generally speaking, having carrier status for one of these hundreds of genetic diseases um, has gives you 50% of the defect that someone who was homozygous for them would. So these are diseases where they'd be like debilitating or fatal in early childhood or infancy in severe cases. And so most of us are walking around with one, two, or three of these at a 50% level. Um, and the way medicine looks at it is to say, well, you're a carrier. You're not a, like the reasons you're called a carrier is because you carry the potential to have that disease. It can pass on to someone else, but you don't have it. Um, but I, but the, everything in medicine and everything in medical diagnosis is a reality distortion filter that is meant to use as a model for what medicine is trying to do, which is filter the information to make it more usable to their purpose, which is decide to categorize you into which drugs you should be on. Um, and so medicine can say, and I mean, it's broader than that, and that, that might come across a little disparaging, which is kind of half intentional. Um, yes, doctors do more than just put people on pills, but it's still the case that what they're trying to do with medical diagnosis is triage what belongs where and which, what effort should be put on what for the sake of a efficiency. And if you talk to like, if you talk to them about it, and I'm not sure how much this is um, a genuine concern versus uh, like a, a meme that the, that the insurance companies invented, but a lot of doctors are concerned about over testing because they think it, you'll just get false positives for things that don't matter that much and create anxiety for the patients. Um, and I, I think this is a really weird point of view because you only will do that if you tell the patient in a way that makes them anxious, um, mm. information could, could be empowering. Right. And so that, that's why I think it, this whole idea might be a scam that the health insurance companies came up with. And it just like sounded good enough to doctors to like take the lead in believing it because if they can limit what gets tested, they don't have to pay for it. Um, so if you can, if you can say like whole genome sequencing is, is um, frivolous and there was no diagnostic basis for it and you don't have to pay for it, then that's, you know, 400 bucks that you, that you don't have to pay for as an insurance company, which add up, add up billions of people. And that's a lot of money. So anyway, the medical paradigm is very much, uh, it's not really designed on like the premise of like, how do I optimize your biochemistry to make you healthier? It's, it's designed on this. Um, how do I decide whether you are a justifiable treatment case, given the medications that I can give you and what your insurance is willing to pay for? Right. Because at the end of the day, like most of their justification is like, how often is a doctor justifying to an ethical board about their decisions versus justifying to an insurance company? It's like 99.9999999% they're justifying to the insurance company, right? Which means that the medical definitions are not about you optimizing your health. They're about, they're about the, 
the insurance companies dictating to doctors what they're able to get away with, you know, so that's the main, right. So the medical, the medical diagnosis of these diseases is, um, is pigeonholed into something where like we can define a very strict number of people that should get treated in this way. The reality is that if you're a carrier, that has a 50% effect on your biochemistry in that area. And quite often these are nutritionally actionable things. And so it's, I'm in the process of, of categorizing 1800 of these according to what they impact they would have on their nutrition. But right now I would estimate that probably about 30% of people have things of this nature that would impact what macronutrients they can best tolerate. And maybe 20 or 30% have um, significant limiting factors in their metabolism as a result of these call for certain nutrient supplements. And so if your energy metabolism is sapped by 20%, um, you probably wouldn't have a neurological disorder, although you might, and you, but you, and you probably, you may well have neurological symptoms. Like how many people have benign fasciculation syndrome, which means benign and syndrome both mean I can't figure it out to go home. Um, <laughs> and so it's like annoying that your eyes twitching all the time, but it's benign fasciculation syndrome should deal with it. Um, right. So it's like, I would say the number of people who have unacknowledged neurological problems is really high. Um, like the number of people who are like, Dr. My, my arm's twitching. Like, I don't know why. And they're like, I don't know why either. Stop thinking about it. Like that, the, 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 that number of people I think is extremely high. Extremely um, high and frustrating for people, right? Because yeah. they're no, just I think like, it's like kind 30, of- 40, 50% of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> These unexplained things. Yeah. Which, which is also the, the rate of like hair graying is, is also very high, right? Um, and so I'm not, so I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of torn about like, what is the threshold of age at which you can say graying hair is normal? Um, I mean, certainly it's hard to say, like, it, you know, certainly like in biblical times, it was, it was considered normal to be gray haired when you were old, which meant you were wise, um, you know, but it's, but in biblical times, people were also like in, in stressful hierarchical societies that were eating grains mostly. Right. So it's, it's tough to say like, like if you can go back as far as there's a written record and, and you, and you are in a very hierarchical kind of like not the best, probably not optimized, optimized nutrition era. So it's very hard to, to get my, to, for me to wrap my head around, like, is it normal for a 70 year, like, is, is it, is a 70 year old person who's in absolutely peak health? Are they supposed to have gray hair? I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm agnostic on it. But I think it was like totally wrong that I got my first gray hair when I was like 25. Um, I think that's- yeah, Have you that's, got siblings? Did they get a gray hair early? I don't have any siblings, but my mom got her first gray hair when she was 14. Wow. See, so so this is interesting because I got my first gray hair probably a year ago and I'm 40, a year or two ago. So it was definitely after COVID and I'm 47, coming up to 48, right? And yet my sister got her first gray hair at 23. That's, that's a big difference. Yeah. Lose it. Uh, living through COVID in, in New York made my hair fall out. <laughs> I think I thought not, you were going to tell me that's why I got gray hair. I was doing not, well. I was on track for 70 until COVID hit. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people like, I don't think COVID lockdowns is like as bad as being president of the United States, but certainly um, stress. <laughs> was stress. Um so I, yeah, anyway, to, to sort of wrap this up to the point, I think that the reason you're never going to find like, oh, folate supplementation 
cures everyone's gray hair is because there's probably a lot of people whose gray hair is driven by the fact that they need more folate than the average person, but it's highly unique to them. Mm-hmm. And it's not as a result of common polymorphisms that people are getting in these. I, I think a lot of the, what people are getting in their genetics is like total noise. Um, and there's like, yes, there's, yeah, you can get someone to test 500,000 of your 6 million polymorphisms and then give you like a hundred pages of reports on this went up 5%, that went down 5%, whatever. And like, I'm that yes, it's impacting you. But if everyone's walking around with like three things that are um, half of what would kill or maim an infant, I think that those three things are probably a lot more likely to be limiting bottlenecks in their metabolism. And so I think there's just a lot of inter-individual variation where it's just like one person's gray hair cure is probably 500 milligrams of thiamine a day, um, but it's not going to work for their friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that makes sense. I was funnily enough a bit folate deficient when I found out I was getting the old gray. I mean, what about thinning of hair? Because you make an interesting point. If if lustrous hair is identifying of to do with energy metabolism, right? But then you also have people like you can look at kit. If I look at my kids, right? My daughter has beautiful, abundant hair. She might have a friend, for example, who has much thinner hair, right? Some of that's natural. That's not to do presumably at that age. Otherwise, we could say, well, if we make everybody really replete in certain nutrients, we're all going to have this incredible hair. Yeah. I mean, not all rich guys drive a Lambo. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's very analogous. Um, the, the status. So there's, there's genetic variation in what your body would choose to use as a status symbol. Um, I mean, uh, ultimately. Oh, I see. Okay. Oh, so it's effectively displaying a form of status symbol. Yeah, I mean, so like in the I don't. I mean, in part of slang, we say pe- someone's peacocking if they're like boasting or like you know, um, kind of like doing yeah. excessive display of status or whatever, which is taken from the peacock, which, <laughs> um, which you know, the male peacock has like this ridiculous uh you know pimped out beautiful type of thing right and um and so in reality like all of all animals are doing this in some way it's just that the peacock has its particular niche that it's decided what right like not (laughs) i mean it's it's very it's sort of like there's there's that that style of the pimp with the purple fur coat and the whatever like not all people who have a lot of status dress like that, but <laughs> that's that's a particular niche uh, of what type of, you know, you're combining I have high status with this is what my status is, right? And the male peacock is combining I have high status and I'm a male peacock. And so this, mm-hmm. so it's a particular niche of, of how they display status. Um, and, you know, and humans, humans do this more through, um, like conscious behavior than anything else right like because our our status in the society that we've built as as sort of like built on this natural biological thing that's based mostly on biological energy and has become about societal energy and societal status and so a lot of a lot of like the the pressure on our genetics has probably I would say it's probably the case that as humans have become more hierarchical, the pressure to maintain biological forms of energetic status has probably been diminished a lot 
because now you get you know, like now you can drive a Lambo or get the the pimp coat or like wear the the um you know expensive suit instead of the cheap one or mm. um you know wear like it right depends on would that on be what... true of hair loss as well then like would that would hair loss be driven in any way by insufficiency nutritionally or is it that well, actually I, I guess because I'm... you yeah, read I mean, some things that's talks about fathers right that if a is it the grandfather or something then the, the grandsons are more likely to lose their hair early and i don't know if there's any truth to that it's an interesting question i haven't done a deep dive into the into the like evolutionary genetics of of hair loss but i but it would certainly fit in with what i'm saying that that those genes have been allowed to perpetuate because mm. if you can prove your status through other means mm. i mean how like how many how many bald short guys have high status and really <laughs> hot wives right like <laughs> it's it's a that's bad because they're proving their status some other way right and and, mm -hmm. and all all of the, the genetics is all about the fertility right mm. So if you can, if you can win the hot wife and have her knock out seven kids, be short, bald, ugly, and have a lot of money, like that's a, that's an alternative path to fertility. Yeah, and it is, but it's not just, no, yeah, it's just true. It's not necessarily genetically superior. I mean, it's really interesting because when I interviewed Emily Fletcher, uh, the founder of Ziva Meditation, she has reverse graying hair with meditation. Which is kind of, I guess, in, in linking in with the stress and the output and everything. Um, yeah. So but, stress, yeah. stress is a signal of energy demand, right? The stress is saying, "Well, hold up. Like, I don't know if we can spend this energy on the hair because right now we've got serious issues at hand, right?" So the the brain is calculating a budget based on long term and short term energy stores based on insulin and leptin, which are signaling how much body fat do you have? Have you eaten? Um, and saying like the prop, like the long-term energy store is your body fat, which is basically saying how, you know, what's the, what's sort of like the long-term likelihood that I will have enough food six months from now versus today, right? Whether you've eaten today tells your brain, like right now we have enough energy, but your body fat is signaling, like, if I'm not underweight, I probably have had energy the last six months. I'll probably still have energy the next six months. And then stress and inflammation are signaling, I would categorize inflammation as a subcategory of stress. So psychosocial, emotional stress is largely signaled through the fight or flight response and infectious stress is largely signaled through the inflammatory front. But both of those things are signaling acute requirements of energy that are more important in the short term. And that's just impacting your budget uh, in the same way that um, your salary might've stayed the same, but if all of a sudden you had to pay for a family member who had a major surgery and didn't have their insurance covered or something like that, you would probably alter your spending habits on the basis that something came up. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's the stress effect. And what I was saying before is not that the genetics have decided that it, it's not important. It's just that the pressure for everyone to be able to do all the same types of things that we want, I think has gotten dimmed. And so there's probably a, a more, there are probably more people now than there were 10,000 years ago who have less of a genetic drive to use their energy status to display in their hair mm -hmm. as a result of being able to display it in other ways. But that doesn't mean that the basic biological drive is 
gone from anyone and or that it is not just as strong as it ever was in a lot of people. Mm. Interesting. It's a bit of, a little bit like the jawline with uh, kind of masculinity and women, I think, you know, often will find men with a really solid jawline more attractive, right? Because that's a sign of fertility and strength and that's going to pass on to their their children. Yeah. Although I think that hair is probably more like short-term malleable, uh, you know, like you were saying, if you can reverse, it would probably be mm. easier to reverse hair graying than it would be to reverse a narrow jawline, but. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess maybe you'd have to like <laughs> do some more lifting. You've given me some things to do now, Chris. Um, I'm definitely doing a carrot juice challenge for the next five days and I'm going to measure it with a CGM and see what happens. I'm definitely going to meditate more and uh, reduce these few grays that have popped up and see what happens. And then maybe you're so interesting. Maybe we can do a part two. Cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Where can, I think we did link, but say again, where can people find you? Cause you have Chris, phenomenal content. Chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com is, is where you can find me. Awesome. We'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast, visit femalebiohacker.com and be part of a special community of women looking to optimize their mind, body, and spirit. If you're tired of sifting through countless websites and books to find the answers to your questions about nutrition, fitness, hormones, mindset, spirituality, and biohacking, the search is over. I've done the research for you and every week we go live with in-depth masterclasses, Q&A calls and monthly challenges to help you transform your life. And when you join the collective, you'll have access to a wealth of information, including deep dive masterclasses and biohacking toolkits on our members' favorites like metabolic flexibility, gut health, stress and resiliency, and stepping into your most empowered self. Get access and be coached by me and my team and level up your health, career and life all for less than a dollar a day. Go to femalebiohacker.com or click the link below to get started and I'll see you on the inside.